This podcast deals with violence and contains graphic descriptions that may be triggering for sensitive listeners. What's your name? Pindile. And what's your job? My job is the sales rep for Sky Washing Powder. It's a very good one. It's two-in-one. You can wash it on a machine or with your hands. And it's got a fabric softener inside. It's good for ladies and men, obviously, <laughs> because some of them, they do their washing. This is Pindile Ntsizwana. As you can hear, she's a sales representative for a new brand of washing powder, Sky. She's talking to Rasmus Bits inside the Royal Supermarket in Snake Park. Sky is sitting prominently on the shelf next to Ariel, Omo, and Sunlight. Unlike the others, Sky is neither an international or a household brand across South Africa. But you wouldn't guess that by looking at it on the shelf. That's because of Pindile and her colleague. Yes, yes, it's me and Ibongosi, Nene. We're going that way. We want to make sure that the customers, they know it about the sky washing powder because it's a very good brand and it's doing its job. It's a very good brand and we love it. The Royal Supermarket is the place where Spio Mahori was shot in 2015. We've been here many times before. But today, reporters Rasmus Pitts and Tanya Pampaloni ended up here unintentionally. They set out with a completely different goal in mind when they left Soweto's Dobsonville Mall a few hours ago. And yet, it was probably not a coincidence. You're listening to One Night in Snake Park. I'm Elliot Moleba. In the last episode of One Night in Snake Park, we met Amir Sheikh, the more or less official head of the Somali community in South Africa. We will find out, we will find out. I'll help you. We will work together. He promised to help us understand what happened when Spio Mahori was killed from the point of view of the Somali community. But as it turned out, the contacts he gave us did not actually want to talk. I cannot talk something I don't know. Our problem was that all roads into the Somali community lead to Amir, and Amir got us nowhere. Although he was cordial and spent a lot of time sharing his thoughts about the community, he was the gatekeeper and did not seem to want to open them for us, at least to what happened that night. Through an anonymous source, we heard that Yusuf was still in South Africa. But so far, we hadn't been able to speak with him or confirm any of the facts. So we took another approach. It is the oldest trick in the book. We decided to follow the money. Money is always mentioned as a central factor whenever there is a flare-up of xenophobia in South Africa. The jobs the foreigners allegedly steal from the locals by running spaza shops in the townships, or the illegal economy that they are supposedly heavily involved in. Also, politicians and police usually claim that actual xenophobia has nothing to do with attacks, 
that it is all done by criminals, looters obviously looking for financial gain. But how is Spewer's death related to the economy of Snake Park? And what kind of money are we talking about? Well, a whole lot, as it turns out. In uh, kind of tongue in cheek in Gasinomic Revolution, that the largest form of foreign direct investment in this country was the immigrant trader, and that the government should recognize it. And if you look at the figures, actually, the largest sector of foreign direct investment is from Somalis, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, and Ethiopians. There, there's 20 billion rand a year is paid in rental to South Africans by Somalis. This is Gigi Alcock. He's a businessman and an author of the book. The Casinomics Revolution, an expert in the informal economy in South African townships, which are also known as Kasis. We've set up a meeting with him hey, in the parking lot in front of the yeah. Dobsonville Mall in Soweto. Gigi Alcock is a tall, bold, white South African man whose extraordinary family history is documented in the book My Traitor's Heart by Rian Melan. Gigi grew up in a village in rural KwaZulu-Natal. But it is here in Joburg where he's made a name for himself in the township business. This is also where he gained the confidence to claim that everything we think we know about the township economy is wrong. The informal sector happens to be like we've just driven to Soweto, away from the city centre, away from the seats of power, and now away from the suburbs where the government officials and politicians live. Problem is a mindset. It's like we do not want to create more informal, uh, informal traders. And the same person will proudly say, my grandmother had a little food outlet and they put me through school and through university using that little outlet. But does he want to support other outlets like that who've got someone like their granny running that business? No, they, they want someone to be employed eight to five. We will get back to that because the first surprise revealed today is that Gigi Alcock is not alone. He turns up with another man named Ibrahim. Hi, my name is Abdullah Ibrahim. I'm the National Treasurer of Somali Community Board. It is not the first time Ibrahim and Tanya have met. They have seen each other before, in the office of the Somali Community Board in Mayfair. Ibrahim is a close associate of Amir Sheikh. He helps run the business arm of the group, SAMSA, from the same office as the Somali Community Board. Okay, it depends on, you know, we, we do represent these stores and uh, in terms of two things, we do help them with the document issues because it is challenging to run a business without legal proper documents. We do guide them and advise them which channels to follow. Second, we also do advise them on business issues. And thirdly, if there is a xenophobia or there is any problem, we take them to safer places. And now? He appears alongside Gigi Alcock in Soweto. As it turns out, they are in business together too. One of the projects they are working on is the launching of Sky, the washing powder brand. In the Sky, what we do is we, we do street promotions. What we do is we do target tax runs where there's more footprint. And we tell them that this product is available in your nearest tax shops. Today, we're going to follow their sales reps, Pindile and Bonginko Sinene, around the Spaza shops in Snake Park. On the way, Gigi and Ibrahim explain how the Somali trade works. 
So we get into Gigi's large four-wheel drive double cap and follow the sales rep into Snake Park. So yeah, so we're in Soweto, the famed Soweto, um, which uh, like um, most townships in, in South Africa is, uh, is really becoming very much suburban uh, from the kind of little forum houses and shacks of the past. Um, and with a growing, um, booming, informal economy, um, which in many ways is disrupting the formal economy, particularly led by immigrant, um, what we call spaza owners. So the, the nature of the, of the township is to a large extent a, a combination of everyone from uh, hawkers or tabletop um, sellers selling on tabletops around us all the way through to, to what we call kind of spazas, which are hole-in-the-wall little informal um, stores. Uh, kind of your neighborhood um, forecourt garage type shop where you buy emergency supplies um, all the way through to um, a, a new kind of store uh, there's one across the road there called a spazaret which is very much a, a kind of informal kind of halfway between a spaza and a, and a supermarket the township economy like the townships themselves are rooted in apartheid history when the townships were established, they were intentionally isolated from the commercial centers of the towns and cities. This gave rise to the spaza, originally a hole-in-the-wall type business that was born out of necessity by the hands of informal entrepreneurs with no government support or regulation. After democracy, the spaza economy was still thriving partly because there was no competition from established retailers such as the supermarket chains of ShopRite and Pick and Pay. But eventually, as Gigi tells it, the South African-owned spazas conceded their market to the retail giants who realized there was money to be made in the townships. And overnight they killed the South African spaza owner uh, and call it eight years ago, <coughs> excuse me, um, 2010, the, um, the, the South African spas are literally um, in the townships stopped being any real uh, retail sector. We all heralded the end of the uh, independent little township trader and the entry of these corporate giants. A widespread argument for xenophobic attacks is that the foreigners, through cunning and dirty tricks, outcompeted locally owned spaza shops. Both Ibrahim and Gigi argue that this is not true because the locally owned spazas had mostly vanished by the time the Somalis entered the scene. Uh, okay, if I just go back, just a second back, it's the first foreign store is open in this country, 1997 June. It's opened a small place called Boysenbach between Utenhek and uh, Port Elizabeth in Eastern Cape. But like Mr. Gigi was saying, these things, the shops increased after... 2008, 2009, 2010. So the question is, where were the local stores between 2004 and 2007? The question is, these chain stores swallowed them, and we came to compete with these chain stores. So the question is, we found stores that are closed, almost dead. And the South African, of course, was ecstatic because he could rent a store that was not functional anymore to this idiot immigrant. Um, who didn't know any better. <clears throat> and uh, so they started renting out their stores and um, 
these immigrants uh, over a very short time started transforming these stores from a little hole in the wall to a supermarket aisle type format um, and offering incredibly well-priced branded goods um, from those stores and, and, and almost as if it appeared overnight suddenly this immigrant sector of traders for particular groups which was the Ethiopians, Somalians, Bangladeshis and Pakistanis within within three to four years suddenly represented 85% of all stores. Ibrahim and Gigi tell a convincing story. They argue that the anti-immigrant sentiment is based on a misconception that the jobs supposedly taken by foreigners were not really in the townships anyway. And while they don't exactly hide the problems, their vision of the story of foreigners in places like Snake Park is a story of opportunity of entrepreneurship. But like most other things in this story, it may not be as simple as that, at least not according to Lauren Landau, who co-edited the book about xenophobia in South Africa with Tanya, the senior researcher you might remember from episode one. Lauren argues that the idea of foreigners stealing jobs has roots that go even further back. There was a time when the whole labor system was designed to keep black people out of cities, and foreign labor was used as a way of undermining the power of black South Africans, economic power, political power, fragment the population, put them in mixed groups in in mines or in factories so that they couldn't organize. And I think after apartheid, there was a sense that these people from outside were brought in to keep us down, to keep us weak. And that discourse circulated on the streets. It wasn't true that the new people coming were there as part of a project to stop black South Africans from moving forward, but it was often seen that way. And from the mid-90s, there's been violence against Mozambicans, Zimbabweans, and others. And that's accelerated until 2008, when we saw sort of mass attacks in many parts of the country. I think what's important here is that this was something that started both at a high level. You had politicians victimizing, villainizing foreigners, but it was really something that came up from the street, where people on the ground felt threatened, where business owners felt threatened, where local leaders felt threatened by foreigners and saw the opportunities of, uh, of demonizing them for their own political gain. As we drive around Snake Park and visit different shapes and sizes of puzzle shops, we can see the progression that Ibrahim and Gigi talk about. From the tiny hole in the walls to the spazarets, supermarket-style-like shops that sell everything from bread to electric heaters. The smallest shops are hardly ever run or owned by Somalis, and the biggest ones almost always are. Yeah, and uh, and uh, on that point, it's like... Uh what happened after 2011, the stores started growing, but in different parts of the country. The first Somali wholesalers were twins, actually. One was open in Kimberley. It was called King's Kitchen Kerry, and the other one was open in Zenierville, Rustenburg. So, and, and what motivated these guys to open, to move from Hole in a World, which is a tax shop, to a spazaret, to a wholesale is, they realized, like, uh, you have to travel, travel 30 to 60 to 100 kilometers to go to the nearest wholesale. And they found out like the number of shops are increasing by day. 
So what they found out, like, okay, here are 300 stores. The guys put maybe the, the best 50 or these guys put the money together. They opened their own wholesalers. So from 2010 or 11, so Somalis started moving one step up the ladder. From being a hole in a wall in 1997, 22 years later, to owning a cash and carry, which does about 200, 300,000 rand a day. That is 3 million to 9 million a month. That's the growth. Somalis have moved up in the world from that one shop in the Eastern Cape that initially seemed like a terrible financial idea made by an ignorant immigrant. The informal retail sector has become incredibly valuable. There are, um, there, there's 20 billion rand a year is paid in rental to South Africans by Somalis and Pakistanis and Bangladesh. Those four immigrant groups pay 20 billion rand in rent a year. So if you take a simple number and the, the conservative figures is 100,000 outlets. 75% of, of, um, of, of many products are now going through the wholesale sector. So, of, so there's that 150 billion rand. That's not a number we have to um, guess on. We just know that there's 150 billion rand is going through the wholesale sector. It's a, it's a, it's a statistic. Again, do the, do the extrapolation in terms of how many outlets, and each one of those outlets is paying rent, is extending their store, is paying VAT. What is the VAT on 150 billion rand? But these, these numbers, <coughs> what I'm saying is, again, these numbers aren't official because everything's in the informal economy. Because, like, if you can say these are the guys that are bringing in the foreign direct investment, you can't actually say because you don't, like, or you can say or you can extrapolate, but you don't, like, you can't show people and say, here it is on the bank statement that says... But I can because... Um, there are there's 150 billion rand going through the wholesale sector. We know that. These numbers are big, hard to understand, and may even sound unrealistic. A small shop here and a small shop there doesn't sound like billions of rands. But when you get to the point where all the threats of the business networks meet, it's a different story. So yeah, so this is Soweto Cash and Carry. It's a huge warehouse with uh, brands and products stocked from floor to ceiling. Um, they turn over about between three and 400,000 rand a day every single day, um, supplying bulk products to the Spaza and Spazaret sector who would come here to stock their stores up. It's closer to them than other wholesalers, so they would be driving from Snake Park where we were to here in those uh, vans and buying from here and loading up. So this is a Somali-owned, what I call a midi wholesaler. It's not so midi, but um, this sector we broadly call that. It's probably worth about 35 to 40 billion rand a year and about 1,000 um, midi wholesalers in the country, which probably about 200 are the larger ones. Some of them are cash and carry, so a consumer can walk in and buy an individual product, and some of them are, are pure wholesalers like this one that you can only buy bulk goods. Mm. Um, and so, for example, here yeah, I'm standing next to a shelf that has probably like 15 Monster. different kinds of energy drink. Yeah. Monster, Red Bull, uh, Play, Dragon is a huge product that was launched into the township sector, bypassing the formal retail sector, owned by two Lebanese guys. Um, so yeah, so we would have everything from energy drink to washing powder to body lotion. Uh, all the way through, Coca-Cola's over behind you. Um, so any form of, of any stock you want to stock in, in your store. It's often said that one of the reasons the Somali traders are so successful is that they don't play fair. 
that they join together and buy in bulk, putting pressure on suppliers so they can get cheaper products and so locals can't compete. At first glance, it seems like the never-ending stream of white buckies coming and going, transporting goods to shops across this part of Soweto, is evidence that this is true, that the Somalis work together and can outcompete locals. But not only is this not true, says Gigi Alcock, the wholesaler proves the opposite. Manufacturers will not supply these guys directly because they, A, they don't know they exist, but also the formal wholesalers um, have, have, have told the, the manufacturers and brand owners that if you supply these guys, we'll delist you from our wholesalers. So they buy from other wholesalers. They'll go to, to Crown Mines and buy from Macra or buy from Devland or KitKat or all of those formal wholesalers. The busy wholesaler and the steady stream of buckies is not proof of an advantage. But it is proof of something else. The ability of the Somalis to take a disadvantage, build a new infrastructure and make it work in their favour. Another example of this is the so-called Hawala system, an ancient financial transfer system originating in South Asia, which is now used around the world. It is widely used by Somalis and unregulated by any formal structures, which makes it well-suited for money laundering. Controversial terror groups like Al-Shabaab are also known to use the system. But even for ordinary people, it works like a charm. The pipe that goes through. <laughs> Where that goes here and there. You know, if, if I have to start explaining, I have to explain the whole process. What I know, it's the beginning and the end. If you are Somali in Johannesburg and need to send money to a cousin in New York City, in the US, or in Stockholm or Mogadishu, there is almost certainly a guy in your street that can handle the transaction. There is no paperwork, no contracts, no actual money being sent across the world, and also no way you can take your dispute to the police if your cousin doesn't get his money halfway around the world. But most of the time he does. So if you had to give $100 to your mother in Somalia, who would you give it to? I give it to a guy in Mayfair. A guy in Mayfair? And yeah. then where does your mother get the money? She gets e-money. In a bank? No, in a phone. Somalis are world champions at parallel structures based on clan loyalty outside of formal jurisdictions. It's the skeleton of a political and economic formation that extends across the world, more or less independent of territory, but all tied back to the motherland. This is because so many Somalis have had to flee their country, but it has served them well in informal trading. Take, for example, the typical way of purchasing a shop. We, we got a, a kind of elder commission kind of system in the Somalis and in, in the Ethiopian communities. So if I buy the shop from you, all you need to do is, you need to have two witnesses first. Then if I happen to default and say, once you hand over the, mat, the money to me and there are two witnesses, I'll take you to the landlord and just say, okay, I'm moving out and the brother will be looking after the business. I happen to default, then you'll take me to the council of elders. So, so long as there are two witnesses and they are 
trustworthy witnesses, they, are, they act like a kind of courts. And no two to three people will ever agree on faults. So it is fixed and everyone respects. Because if you don't respect the community, then you're not part of the community and you'll be alone and for your own. So everyone fears that being alone and they have to listen to the elders. So basically it's a big misunderstanding to think that informal economy is not under order. No, it is actually, what you know, the, the word, what's separate between formal and informal is just the pen. But this handshake is more important and worth than 10 pages. So long as you have two witnesses, you have the best lawyers. These informal structures form the discussion at our final stop on the journey, the Royal Supermarket. Our tour ends at the exact shop where Spiwa was killed. Now Gigi and Ibrahim want to show it to us as an example of one of the most successful stores of its kind in the area. We don't know if this is a coincidence. Regardless, it is difficult to imagine the well-kept store as a crime scene. The new owner, Abdul, has done very well converting the shop into what looks like a modern supermarket, albeit under a tin roof. He's certainly winning against competition from the big supermarket chains on what should be their own turf. His methods are simple, as he told us the last time we spoke. So we always try to do our best to attract our customers. That's why we maintain every six months, we try to paint it, to keep clean. And our clients must get what they need. It's our first intention to get our customer what they need. In terms of the price, you have to understand that you are in a competition. Even people who are coming late, 10 o'clock, they can get airtime, drinking and bread. People who are coming early in the morning, going to uh, rushing to work, they can get airtime and whatever they want. That's why I think Somalians have done good. But what does this all have to do with pure Mahori? Does the massive informal economy of South Africa and the Somalians' role in it explain xenophobia or the killing? Well, if the history of foreign-owned spaza shops in South Africa goes back to the 1990s, the history of these shops getting attacked isn't much younger. This is Ibrahim again. If we just go back to historical of these stores, like I said, the first store was opened in June uh, 1997 in Poisonback. Uh, four years later, the, store, the stores grew to 25 stores and they were also looted in September 11. Violence has always been a cost of doing business for Somalis in South Africa. Every single shop attendant knows this. According to Amir, up to 150 Somalis are killed every year. If that is true, you are almost 10 times as likely to be killed as a Somali in South Africa as an average citizen. We have not been able to verify this number with the South African government, but there is no doubt Somalis and other foreigners are at risk. It is impossible to forget about 2008, when over 60 people were killed in xenophobic attacks. But since then, those attacks never ended, and it might not be as inexplicable as it sometimes seems at least not according to Lauren Landau. After 2008, many people said this was a kind of, the violence against foreigners was this kind of organic upswell of anger and frustration. 
And there is certainly no shortage of anger and frustration across almost every South African township. And it's justified anger. It is anger at being left behind, at being poor of the kind of violence that you've described. But what is often overlooked in these kind of grand narratives is the actors that are leading this violence. Whether it is a, a petty leader in, in Attridgeville who sees that if he steals foreigners' houses, he can give them to his supporters and entrench his role. Whether it's you know a, a politician or a chieftain or, as we've seen in Motherwell, uh, business associations who want to get rid of the competition. They, they, they tap into that anger and that frustration in a way that national politicians often can't do. They pay people to mobilize. It's understanding how these actors are involved, that the governance of these places is not done by the constitution. It's done by something that is crafted on the street. Remember what Bongani, the Nyaupe boy, who apparently started the trouble, explained. Remember how he said that the local councillor was directing the looting once he came to the scene, how he used his whistle. Bongani wasn't the only one who said that that's what happened that night, that foreigners are used for the narrow gain of a local power broker. If it's true, as many say, that the local councillor, Jabulani Tomo, played a major role in the lootings that night, what was his objective? Did he really believe there was a problem with illegal weapons amongst foreigners in Snake Park? Or did the looting have less to do with the Somalis than his own objectives in the area? It's opportunism, but it's, it's instrumentalism. So what we've seen, for example, recently in, in Mamalodi, when the protests against foreigners have happened, it had very little to do with foreigners. It had to do with a local, a local association who wanted the city of Pretoria to recognize them. And they needed people to go out onto the streets to go and protest. But those people wouldn't go unless they got something. So they were promised on the way back, you can loot. You can take from a Somali shop, from a Pakistani shop, from a Bangladeshi shop. That's your payment for standing behind me when I face the mayor. They already don't like these people. They're already angry and they're hungry, so they're willing to do it. And, uh, you know, that happens over and over again. And until we understand that logic, I think it's hard to understand why this violence continues. Uh, wait, what happened with the washing powder here? Um, <laughs> it's there. It's there over the shelf. I can't see it. Oh, okay, okay. Okay. <laughs> over the sky. Oh, okay. Okay. All right, all right. Today, the scene of the crime is a well-run business. Do you sell a lot of the sky? The washing powder, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We sell a lot. Yeah? People like it. Yeah, they like it. It's delicious, it's nice. <laughs> but contrary to a chain store or a supermarket, all the money is still passed through a thin slit in the wall to a back room where a young man sits to minimize the risk of robbery. Most of the time, the young man sleeps in this back room to guard the store and the stock, well aware of the risk. Young men like him are the additional ingredient in the Somali success in the informal retail sector. Young men who have crossed deserts or oceans in search of a better life, who have started out at the bottom of the food chain as the lowest level clack in a faraway rural area. Young men who believe in a kind of a Somali dream where they will go through hardships and danger 
and eventually emerge as successful business owners. Young men like the shooter Yosef, who used to sleep in this very back room, vulnerable to whatever real or imagined threats might be outside the windowless room. Or young men like Abdul, who are realizing that Somalian dream as he now owns this store and has overseen its impressive growth. When you came here in South Africa, while you don't have a cash to open your own business, or while you don't have a brother who can give you a shop that's already operating, then you have to work to get the money to open your own shop. You have to be stronger while you are supporting your family. You left it in Somalia. My family maybe contains 11. I'm the only one who support them. So you have to continue to supporting your family and trying to get a bright future. What these young men also know is that if someone wants to hurt them or their business, there is very little hope in calling the police. Last, last week when the xenophobic attacks were taking place here in, in uh, Snake Park, I called the police. I said, I'm in trouble. I need a help from the police. It was last week. Up to now, I'm waiting the police. Let me repeat that. Last week, Abdul called the police because there were xenophobic attacks in the area. He's running the very shop where a nationwide spat of violence started five years ago. And still, a week later, he has had nothing from the police. But danger, like reward, is relative. In Soweto, Snake Park doesn't have the best reputation. It's seen as poor and sometimes dangerous. But compared to the war-torn Somalia Abdul grew up in and the first shop he worked in in Bumalanga, Snake Park is not that bad. That area is a lit, little bit look like Somalia because the roads are rough and most of the population are from Mozambique. When you go to Soweto or Snake Park, it's like a, it's like a city. They've got the beautiful roads, they've got the beautiful houses. People look like, uh, and somehow they are all working. So it's not like, it's not the same. They are not the same. So, you, it's, so to you, Snake Park is a much richer place than where you were before? Exactly, 100%. On our way back to the mall with Ibrahim and Gigi Alcock, we talk about the risks. At the end of the day, it is the cost of doing business. But the ultimate price, of course, is usually not paid by the business owner. But that doesn't mean that security doesn't have a price. Another group that has been hugely successful in creating business where the state does not provide a framework is the taxi industry in South Africa. As an industry that grew out of the apartheid government's inadequate services, it has become one of the most powerful business groups in the country. Without the taxis running, South Africa comes to a standstill. The taxi associations in Cape Town have realized a gap in the market and have begun offering foreign shop owners protection for a fee. Often, it is said, Business owners don't have a choice in accepting the service. I think it just started like a year and a half ago. It started in Kailicha, in Timbisa. It's slowly grown, but but it's 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 way safe. Really? I'm telling you. And in, in because you know what that state it says like 
these tax institutions are part of gangsters. Yeah. So you're like in Mexico, it's either you join yeah. them yeah. or you suffer. So it's yeah. better to join and assume like, okay. Yeah. Because I remember one guy who's in Kailita, his car was stolen. 15 minutes later, the car was recovered. But it, but, but you are safe, paying 500, yeah. then losing 50,000, being robbed every single right. weekend. Right. No, 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 I'm not saying that it's not right. What no, I'm no, saying is, yeah. I'm saying that the Somalis are making their own plan. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nobody's protecting Ex anyone. Exactly. Nobody's gonna look out for you guys to be able to support it's, one it's, another. In short, we are blending in. Next time on One Night in Snake Park. You confirm the contents of the affidavit, particularly the portion as to how it happened that you fired shots. That is that's extremely important. You can I can guarantee you they will prove that against you in the subsequent trial. Reporting for this podcast by Tanya Pampaloni, Elliot Moleba, Neo Rahajani, and Rasmus Betz. Additional reporting by Paul McNally and recording assistance by Andreas Hammer Holmefield. Original score by John Batman. Editing by Rasmus Bitz. Tanya Pampoloni is executive producer. JD Ramalapa is the editor in chief of Sound Africa. <laughs> <laughs>